know, I was trying to trying to fix my hair. I work hard on this to get this look, you know, and then I walk in and it's all raining. It's not good. I'm actually kidding, but <laughs> uh, my name's Nick. Um, I'm the, the lead pastor, one of the elders here. If I haven't met you, um, love to meet you. Love to uh, get to know who kind of comes through the doors here. Um, I imagine people will still kind of be walking in. Uh, maybe not. Maybe people didn't even want to bring brave the storm here this morning. But uh, thank you guys for making it. Um, well, get us right in. Um, I don't have any introductory words or anything. We could go into Luke 5. We're going to read verses 17 to 26. So if you're familiar with the, with the uh, Bible, you got the Old Testament, the New Testament, and then Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, in the New Testament uh, is where we'll be, chapter 5. If you need a Bible, um, raise your hand. I don't know if you came in with one. If you don't want to get yours soaking wet on the way in. Um, but you can raise your hand and uh, Usher will we'll get one to you. We were here in this text. Uh, I know we've been kind of in and out with the holidays. Um, but we were here in this text last week. I had every intention of moving on. Uh, but there was something at the end of the scene here that uh, captivated me, quite honestly. And I just thought, man, it's actually going to end up probably being like a three-week almost mini-series off of something that we'll see here. So let's, let's read this uh, again. Let me pray, and then uh, we'll, we'll jump in this morning. So Luke 5. Verse 17 says this. One of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. The power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, Some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees, began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. You guys want to pray with me? Let's pray. God, what we want more than anything in this room here today is to see you. We might not even realize that. <laughs> we might come in here hoping that People see us, that we finally get some recognition or we finally get somebody who will love and care and listen to us or someone that appreciates us. But Lord, what we need more than anything in the depths of our being is to see you in all of your beauty, in all of your glory. God, we believe, we believe that in your presence is the fullness of joy. We believe that you are the fountain of living water. 
We believe that all who are weary and heavy laden find their rest in you. We believe that you are the Alpha, the Omega. You're the greatest treasure in all the universe. And we believe that you're here this morning to give yourself away to your people through Jesus Christ. So I ask Jesus this morning, would you draw back the veil a little further? Would you help us to catch a greater glimpse of who you are? And would you set our hearts on fire that we too might glorify you for all that we see? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Um, let me uh, say something just kind of as we as we as we dive in here, um, as we kind of progress in Luke's gospel, um, it, it might be easy to kind of forget where we've come from, especially the pace, the way that I teach. Right. I uh, love to take the scenes, take the, the texts bit by bit and dive in. That's what I love to do. I love to see all that's there. But one of the dangers that can happen is you miss the bigger narrative that's been going on. You can lose sight of kind of the storyline that Luke's been developing for us up to this point. And I want to just remind us of that for a moment, because what I'm about to bring out fits in quite significantly in particular, I, I want us to remember that what Luke has been showing us of Jesus up to this point is that, that Jesus is the second and greater Adam, not A-T-O-M, but A-D-A-M, the, the, the headwaters of, of humanity there at creation was Adam and Eve, and Jesus here is now being pictured as the headwaters of a new humanity. The beginning of a new humanity, the one who has come to restore, regain, repair all that was fractured in the first. That's what Luke is trying to do here with Jesus and present him in that way because that is who he is. And so what we have seen up to this point regarding Christ, among many other things, is at least this. At his baptism, right, we watch him uh, uh, come out from the waters and the Holy Spirit come on. And we watch him go do combat with the devil in the wilderness. And now we are watching him kind of marching out as the pioneer of God's new creation. And so he's just, he's just healing. He's announcing the year of Jubilee and the year of release and slaves going free. And he's, he's, he's raising the dead and the sick and he's, he's casting out demons. He's restoring things. He's remaking things. He's bringing humanity back into orbit around God. He's putting our lives back in order. Now one Profound indication that such a thing is happening is actually found when we give a closer look to how our text, this scene with the paralytic, ends. I want to read it for you there in verse 25 and and, and verse 26. After all this stuff goes down, here's how the scene closes and concludes. And immediately... He, the paralytic, rose up before them. He picked up what he had been lying on and went home, what? Glorifying God. And then verse 26, amazement seized them all. This crowd that had filled this place so much so that these guys had to come in through the roof. All these people, it says amazement seized them. And they, what? Glorified God. We're filled with awe, saying, we've seen extraordinary things today. So this paralytic and these people around him, upon coming to face the person and work of Jesus Christ, glorified God. And, and you might say, okay, how, how is that an indication of, you know, Jesus putting the world and humanity back together? Well, let me tell you. Quite simply, you and I were created for the glory of God. So if we are to ask, what does restored humanity look like? 
What does a, 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 a human being firing on all cylinders look like? What do they do? You want to know what they do? They glorify God. They bring glory to him. Their lives come back into orbit around him and they glorify him. That is human flourishing 101. That's the arithmetic of the kingdom. We, we finally break away from the tyranny of self. And we find the freedom of, 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 of being in God's kingdom and living for his glory and something so much bigger, so much grander than all our little sub plots and narratives. If you question me at this point, um, Allow me to make a, a quick case for what I, I just claimed. Um, some of you may know, I studied at Westminster in uh, Philadelphia. So Westminster Theological Seminary in uh, Philadelphia. It was awesome. It was a great time. It was brutal, quite honestly, academically rigorous. Uh, but they developed their curriculum around the what's called the Westminster Confession. Okay. And the Westminster Confession was developed, written by um, some of our Puritan brothers back in England in like 1640s. Um, and they developed their kind of theology that way, but they put alongside this confession of faith uh, what they called the larger and the shorter catechisms. All right. Catechism is basically just kind of like a Q&A way of, of teaching uh biblical truths. So these catechisms helped kind of teach in a question and answer sort of format uh, the, the, the biblical truths that they had there in the Westminster Confession. Well, here's where I'm going with this. The shorter catechism opens with this question. What is the chief end of man? In other words, why do people, why do I exist? What's the main goal of humanity, of this man here and you out there? Why do we exist? Question. Answer. Man's chief end is to glorify God. Glorify God. Now, that hasn't proven anything to you yet because that's just other men's opinions. At least now you know I'm not alone in thinking that human flourishing and we as human beings exist for his glory, to glorify him. But let me ask you now, we got to go, hey, is this biblical? Well, these guys put it in there because quite honestly, this truth is on the surface plainly of the scriptures. Let me take you there now for a moment. God says as much himself, actually, in Isaiah 43, 6 through 7. He's talking about gathering in his people, these people he's redeeming and, and he's reconstituting. And he's, he's going to finally bring fallen humanity back into order. And this is what he says about them. He says, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Created for his glory. That's God speaking. I know I created them and I created them for my glory. Of course, you might think of that, uh, that. I mean, it's a staggering text. It's, it's an all-encompassing, sweeping text there in 1 Corinthians 10.31. It has some, some particular historical context, but Paul just bring, breaks this out to cover everything in your life. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. I wonder if you heard that. Whatever you do. That means from first to final breath. Lived out to the glory of God. I mean, that right there is a life's mission statement. 
I mean, that's why when, you know, thinking about praying about crafting kind of a mission statement for my life and this church, I said, glory's got to be there. <laughs> it's why we exist. Therefore, Mercy Hill exists to adore, manifest, and proclaim the glory of God as revealed in the gospel. This is, this is the chief end of man and as now redeemed humanity in this church, this church. We would live for his glory, that every aspect of our ministry for his glory. Let me give you one more in 2 Corinthians 5.15. Paul writes this. He, Jesus, died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and raised. Did you hear that? So Christ comes, he dies, he redeems, he remakes humanity. And what does restored, redeemed, remade humanity look like? It looks like turning away from self. I no longer live for myself, but now for him. That's what happens when people come back to what they were originally created for. They live for him. They finally escape the black hole of self and they find themselves in the big sky of God's glory. You there with me today? Wanting to be there? Get me out of the black hole of self-glory. Get me into something so much bigger, so much better. Now, of course, we could actually and probably most effectively just derive all of this by going back to how you and I, humanity, were created in the very beginning in the first place. So if you want to know why something exists, you should go back to the day that thing was created, right? Okay. Why, how was it created in the first place? Well, what do we see when we go to Genesis 1:27 as the very beginnings of our Bible as they're talking about how you and I came to be on this planet? Why were men and women created? How were they created? It says this, God created man in his own image. And there's a lot that that means, but one thing surely it means is that we were created to image, to reflect to show, to glorify him. I don't know if you're like me. I'll just give you a quick side note. This wasn't in my notes. I was just reflecting on it this morning. And You know how sometimes we can kind of think, gosh, God sounds kind of arrogant and mean and selfish. And, and like it's all about him. Who is this guy? Who is this God? You know, in his image and for his glory, it's all about him, huh? I thought it makes him sound arrogant or something. But when I thought about it more, guys, to be created in his image, you want to know what that communicates more than anything? It actually communicates of his humility and his love. <laughs> because what in the world is the creator doing? Putting his image on little old me. That dignifies me up to the heavens and back. That's why Paul or David says in Psalm 8, what is man that you would think of him, right? And put him above all of your handiwork. What dignity we have been given that we are, we are created in his image and allowed to bring glory to him in that way. That we would look like him, that he would want us to look like him. He would want people to look at us and see him. That's crazy. Far from arrogance and just kind of like a slave driver in the sky, that is, that's dignifying, that's humility, that's coming under, coming down and loving us in a significant way. But often we, we, we flip this around, right? We, we don't live uh, for his image, to image him, to glorify him. We live kind of for ourselves. We flip it around and it becomes about my glory, it becomes about my image. And when we do this, we shouldn't be surprised uh, when our life kind of blows a tire and spins out on the freeway. We thought we were flying at 100. This is what it's all about. I'm free, baby. And then the tires just fall off and you're spinning. 
Maybe your life is even there right now because you've just been soaking in self and focused and orbiting around self. And just why do I feel so empty? Even when I get what I work for, I'm empty. You were created for so much more. We were created for God to image, to glorify him. And when we settle for less, hear me now. We become something less than human. So all that's just introduction. Um, The long introduction, I know, but it's all just introduction to say glorifying God is everything. It's our lives. It's why we were created. And I want to I want to. For the next three weeks or so, I think uh, that's my guess. I want to dive into this subject with you. Uh, we're going to start with the text here in Luke because that's what's kind of bringing it to my mind. And I want to look there. We'll look there even today. But I want to let this text catapult us into a larger discussion about well, what does it mean to glorify God? Because as I read that, I even found myself going, what does that mean they did? Were they like skipping as they glorified God? Was the paralytic clapping his hands? Like, what does it mean to glorify God if it's why I exist? And you exist. What does it mean? How do you do it? So we're going to do some word studies. Probably the next couple of weeks. Getting into real practical details. Let me give you kind of the agenda as I see it right now. First, I'm going to kind of deal with stuff under under three basic headings. Um, First, we're going to try to come up with a basic definition. For just what does it mean to glorify God? And then uh, I'm going to identify a a fundamental dynamic that must be in play in our hearts, in our lives, if we're going to be if we're going to be glorifying him. And then third, and like I said, that'll probably be next week and and the week following. We'll look at maybe anywhere from 12 to 14 different particular expressions, ways that the scriptures say we can glorify God when we do these sorts of things. So I'm excited. Uh, Hopefully you guys are as well. So first, let's try to forge a basic definition. And I'm just going to cheat here. Um, I just want to go straight to a Greek dictionary. I'm not going to try to be cute. I'm not going to try to be clever. Uh, I just simply want to look at what's the word in the, in the Greek underlying the English there in Luke's gospel. What's the word and what does the standard theological dictionary say it means? Let me read it for you. So the word there um, that... Two times shows up in in verses 25 and 26. The paralytic glorified God and this crowd glorified God. The word there is in the Greek is doxadzo. Doxadzo. You don't have to know what that means. It doesn't matter. But here is uh, how it's defined. Doxadzo means to influence one's opinion about another so as to enhance the latter's reputation. So let me read that again to influence one's opinion about another so as to enhance the latter's reputation. So in other words, then to glorify God means in some way to enhance his reputation in the world. It means we're just taking a trumpet and saying, God is amazing. And others are hearing and his reputation is he's now known as amazing as something good and great. A quick glance at other dictionaries provides us with a, a greater sense of what is meant. And here's some kind of synonyms that you'd find there. Uh, doxazo means to beautify, to magnify, to praise, to honor, extol, exalt, celebrate, adore, worship. Uh, to put it simply and uh, perhaps a little tongue in cheek, to glorify God means to give him glory. Sounds pretty simple, right? Kind of like, you know, those guys do after they hit the three and they do that little chest bump and stand. That. That's what we're doing, except, you know, with our lives. We're giving him glory. We're magnifying him. We're increasing. We're we're enhancing his reputation. But I want to be careful at this point to avoid a misunderstanding. Um. 
I think when we look at the language here, there's kind of a, a danger of, of coming away with something that's not intended. Um, we're talking about enhancing God's reputation. We're talking about beautifying or magnifying or giving him glory. And all of this might make us think that we're actually adding something to him as we glorify him. Like if I'm giving him the glory, giving him glory, well, when you give something, the language sounds like I'm adding something to him that he didn't already have. Like think with me on this. He's lacking in reputation. Therefore, I'm going to enhance that reputation. He's lacking in magnitude. Therefore, I'm going to magnify him. I got to make him bigger. He needs us to make him bigger. Or he's lacking in beauty. Therefore, we need to beautify him. We're going to clean him up a little bit. He's dirty. Is that what's going on here? Are we adding something to God when we glorify him? Certainly, we must say that uh, that is not the case. We know that God is infinite and eternal in all of his perfections. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We can add nothing to him. So when we glorify God, it is not that we are adding anything to him, but that we are actually just coming to see more of him and helping others come to see more of him, more of what he's already and always been. And we're responding to that revelation appropriately. Here's the image. Here's a picture I would give you. Um, help me. Maybe it will help you. So imagine God as, as the sun. Brilliant, bright, burning sun. And then imagine the world as kind of the front room of a house. Like the front room of my house. And, and we have these big old curtains there, right? Big old windows, it's nice. And it's big curtains, and Dee Dee did some stuff for our curtains. She's awesome with that. <laughs> now, here's what I want. God is the sun. The world is kind of this front room of a house. And ever since the fall, it's as if a curtain has been drawn. It's been closed between us, uh, the world, and God. Now, When we glorify him, here's what I want us to imagine happening. It's as if you and I walk up to that curtain that's been closed and we close and and it's kind of blocking the sun from the world. And we, we, we kind of draw the blinds, draw the curtain back a little bit more and we let in a little bit more light. Let me ask you something. When we let in to that room, a little bit more light, are we in fact, even though the room gets brighter, are we in fact making God any brighter than he's always already been or making the sun any brighter than it's already been? No, we're not adding anything to the sun. We're just coming to see more of him and helping others in the room see more of him. That is what is happening when we glorify God. He's been eternally bright, eternally glorious, but we're just bringing more of that light into the world. When we talk to others about him, we are enhancing his reputation, making him known as he's always been. So in that sense, we can enhance God's reputation in the world while not adding a single thing to it. Does that make sense? Again, in sum then, to glorify God is to enhance his reputation in the world so that others come to appreciate more of who he is and who he has always been and will always be. Okay? Now, there's there's our basic definition. Um, Let me now kind of move us into uh, what I would call the fundamental dynamic that needs to be in play in our lives if we're going to bring glory to him. We have a definition to enhance his reputation in the world, show people who he's always been, will always be. Well, how do you and I do that? Where do we even begin? How do we participate in bringing glory, in glorifying God. So that's really what we're going to look at for the rest of this morning. 
And we'll get into the particular expressions that flow out of this fundamental dynamic. Two weeks following. Now we're ready to look back at our text in Luke. So if you have your Bibles open, you can look again. We're going to read that those two verses there, verses 25 and 26, one final time. And I, and I want to, as we go, I'm looking for clues now. What is going on here that's kind of pointing out what glorifying God might involve? Basic elements involved in glorifying God. Let me show you. Verse 25, 26. Immediately he, the paralytic again, rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. Now, here's what I think this text tells us is fundamental to glorifying God. Let me bring it out. Seeing and savoring him. Seeing something about him put on display. And then loving, savoring, delighting in what you just saw. And in that we start to glorify God. That's a basics to glorifying God, seeing and savoring. In the instance of our text, the crowd and this paralytic saw that Jesus had authority on earth to fix paralysis and forgive sins. And he rose this man up from his stretcher and everyone was just going, no way. They saw the power and the goodness and the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And guess what? They savored. They loved what they saw. And that's why we see they were amazed. They were filled with awe. And they said, we have seen extraordinary things today. And in all of this, they glorified God. Now, some of you may know, I borrow these two words, see and savor from uh, a pastor by the name of John Piper, who wrote a book uh, essentially entitled the same, seeing and savoring Jesus Christ. And I love these two words. I think they're memorable. I think they capture all that I'm after here perfectly. But I want to make sure we understand these uh, two words Seeing and savoring properly. Uh, I, I imagine that the seeing part is pretty self-evident. So I want to go for a moment on this idea of savor. And think with, with you uh, for a moment about it. Because I don't know if we use that word all the time in our, in our everyday speech. I don't know about you, but it's a word that makes me think of like wine connoisseurs. Uh, if you've ever done the whole wine tasting thing, I, I used to live near uh, kind of some wine country stuff in San Luis Obispo. Obviously, we live uh, near that same sort of thing here in Napa Valley. And, and if you've ever done this, this sort of thing, it can it can sometimes I mean, it's it's fun, but it can sometimes feel a little pretentious. Right. Like they have this these five S's that you're supposed to do. And there, there's different variations on this. But but do you, do you have you ever you ever done this where you're sitting there and they're like, OK, listen, don't you just drink it. Don't you, don't you just put that in your mouth and drink it, young man? Here's what you're supposed to do. First, you see it. Okay? Then, what do you do? You swirl it. Okay. You're looking for legs or something. I don't know what you're doing. Okay, yeah, yeah. All right. Then you swirl it. Then I think you... I wrote it down. Then you smell it. Yeah, then you stick your nose in there. <laughs> you do the... You know, and you're smelling the bouquet or whatever. And then... You sip, or yeah, then you sip, and then, well, the, some people say spit. That's if you're going all over the, 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 the place, but what I saw was, then you savor, then you savor. So there's this whole process, and if you've ever kind of talked with them, I used to have to serve wine at a restaurant, and they kind of trained me to talk about the wines, you know. And so you're talking about all the nuances and the subtleties of oak, and, and you're going to taste some, like, orange blossom and some chocolate in this one or whatever. And, and you know, you're just like, 
is where people are sitting there going, really? You're like, no, it's just a good glass of wine. And you don't just guzzle it down. You sip and you savor. Now, why do I bring this up? I'm just trying to give you a picture uh, of, of, of what I think we as Christians ought to feel like when we get sightings of God. We savor every sight we get of him. I mean, that is the reason, you guys, why uh, it's, we're a year and a half about into my pastorate here, and we've gone about four and a half chapters into Luke. You want to know why? That's why. I want to see everything I can and savor it. I want to take us through and go, man, did you taste that? Did you taste that? Don't just drink that. This isn't just Gatorade or something. This is God's word. Did you taste that? That's mercy. That's his mercy you just tasted. Did you taste that? that, that that's that, that's kind of like subtleties of his omnipotence and authority. That's a little bit of his holiness right there. And that, that lingering on your tongue, that's steadfast love. Isn't it amazing? Sip and savor who God is for us and all that we see of him. And let me tell you something. When we see him, we savor him like that. Don't you think he's glorified? Don't you think suddenly his reputation is enhanced in the world when, 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 when uh, we show him to be the treasure that he is? So here's the fundamental dynamic. See and savor him. Let me show you. Um, oh, you know, let me tell you this. I should tell you this. Uh, that, that old catechism I mentioned uh, didn't actually stop where I stopped it in answer to their first question. Um, so they asked the question, what is the chief end of man? And I read the first part, you know, the chief end of man is to glorify God. Boom. That helped me develop my first point, but they didn't stop there. I'm going to call them in to help me here as well. The chief end of man is to glorify God. They say, and enjoy him forever. We were created to be riveted by God. To be overwhelmingly satisfied by him. In his presence is the fullness of joy. And when we go into his presence and find that joy, we glorify him. Well, I see you and I love this. Wow. That's what, as the curtains are drawn back in Revelation 4 and 5 or whatever, and you see heaven, that's what's happening. Revelation and, and delight in response. So we see a close connection between glorifying God and, 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 and enjoying him or savoring him. Let me show you now this fundamental dynamic and how, how it appears again and again um, in Luke's gospel. As God is bringing people back into orbit around himself through Christ. Because the same thing shows up. I'm just going to give us a few examples here. Well, if you remember what Luke says of the shepherds, um, we just got done with Christmas. This is a good example to go to the shepherds after the angels appeared to them and they ran to find the baby Jesus lying in a manger. You remember what we read in, in, in uh, chapter two, verse 20 it says after all this, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. I can't believe what I just saw, and I love it. Wow. You see the angels, and it's just like they said. There's the Messiah. I can't even believe this. God is so good. I see, I savor, and in that, glorify. Or we might consider another example. Now, there were countless examples. I'm just giving us some of the high-water marks. Just did a quick word study on glorify, doxadzo. This is what you find. Consider later when Jesus is met by those ten lepers. And, and as they're walking away, Jesus heals them. And there's one leper who 
turns back. This is what we read when he sees that he's healed. Um, This is Luke 17, verses 15 and 16. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising. That's our word, just so you know. Doxadzo, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. So this brother was walking away uh, from Jesus to go to the priest like Jesus asked him to do. He had not yet been healed, but there he was walking. And as he was walking, he saw he was healed. He said, no way. He ran back, glorifying God and said, thank you. When he saw, when he saw that he was healed, he loved it. Glorifying God. See, a savor, a glorify. And then, of course, my favorite example comes in at the very end of Luke's gospel. It's the last uh, appearance of this word, doxadzo. It's when Jesus is on the cross and he's dying for my sins. And as he breathes his last, Jesus is up there and he says, you know, Father, in your hands, I commit my spirit. There's my substitute. There's my sacrifice. There's my God and my king dying for me. But there's a centurion, a Roman soldier who probably the very guy uh, they, they believe who would have been overseeing this whole crucifixion ordeal. He's been watching this and he's been watching Jesus. and He's been seeing some things. And Luke says This, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised Doxadzo. He glorified God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. Nobody gets crucified like that. He glorified God for what he saw. I mean, in a fuller way, is this not what you and I, I mean, the story of our lives, this is our Christianity, or at least it ought to be. We look upon the cross, we see the Savior who died for us, we get a glimpse of his love for sinners, and we love what we see. We can't believe that we see it, but we do. That the hand of God would be reaching down to a filthy man like me. That he would want me in his family. We see that and we savor it. And in delighting in that, we glorify him, you guys. We love the one who first loved us. And as the world looks in at a people who so love their God, they go, man, something's got to be, there's got to be something about that God. There's got to be something about this God. What is it with these Christians? Well, look at how this seeing and savoring again takes on so many different expressions particulars in the details of our lives now quick words of caution we're, we're, we're going to be drawing things to a close here in a minute quick words of caution and, and then a couple of exhortations I, I I wonder if we realize that we can actually fall off on either side of this dynamic And kind of abort on our mission to glorify God. Let me, let me tell you what I mean. So we can fall off on, 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 on one side of it. Where we can kind of savor God. Without truly seeing him. That one, this one seems a little weird. I wanted to start here. We can, we can savor God. Think we're savoring God. Without truly seeing him. There are people. All over this valley, you probably know some, who would call themselves Christians. They maybe even go to church. And they would say, I love God. I love God. I love Jesus. But it's not the God of the Bible. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. When you ask them about their positions on certain things, they kind of skirt around it or they make declarative statements. Well, God is love and he would never say that. He would never do that. I know God. Not rightly. Not according to his own self-revelation. 
They love, they savor a God, but it's a God created in their own image. There are whole denominations going this way, you guys, that are categorically denying clear claims of the scriptures and writing it into their very constitution. Oh, we say for God, but they don't see him rightly. This is not a new phenomenon. This is what Paul is writing that the Jews are dealing with. He grieves over the Jews for this very thing in Romans 10 too, when he says, listen, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. They're passionate for God, but not according to knowledge. Oh, they love God, but it's their own version of him. They don't actually know him as he's been revealed. And so when we savor, when we're zealous for a God, but it's not according to knowledge, we don't glorify him. We don't. Those two pieces need to be in play. Instead, what Paul says, and this is brutal, this is Romans 2. This is what he says of of the Jews because of this. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You're loving a God and you're telling everybody about him, but it's not even the real God. And therefore, people are getting all sorts of bad ideas about him, false ideas about him. We don't want to fall off on that side. On the other side, we can fall off as well. We can truly see God, but not savor him in the least. This one might seem a little bit more obvious to us. We can see God. We just don't love him at all. We don't savor what we see. We're kind of suspicious of it. We kind of don't like it. Again, we might say that there are people all over this valley that see his glory. I mean, the heavens are declaring the glory of God. There are people here that as they sit in their million dollar mansions and look out at the sunset every evening, They see the glory of God, but they don't savor it. They don't sip it in and savor it. They spit it back in his face. There are some for whom it's not, you know, getting a vision of God is not like a fine wine. It's like it's like drinking battery acid because it's caustic to the ego and caustic to what I want to do with my life. I want to submit. I don't want to live for someone else's glory. Me. Like Nebuchadnezzar, look at what I have made. Don't you tell me I got to honor God for this. For the one leper that turns back to glorify God for what he saw. There are nine that just went on their merry way. Without another word to Jesus. For every one centurion that looks upon the crucified Messiah and says, oh my gosh, God showed up today. There's something crazy about this man glorifies God for it. There are for every one centurion, there are millions of people that look at the cross and just see foolishness and weakness. Nothing beautiful there. Just stupidity, Christians and their backwards ways. If we don't savor what we see in him, we cannot glorify him. So two closing exhortations. And again, I'm not going to be creative. (laughs) Here's the first exhortation. See him. (laughs) See him truly. How? You might ask, okay, Nick, how do I see him? Where am I supposed to see him? I want to see him rightly. I want to see him truly, but he's not walking around like he was with the paralytic and those guys or the lepers or the centurion. I can't see. Where is he? He'd been gone for millennia. I wonder if you remember what Jesus says to the Jews in John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about who? 
other words, for those of us millennia removed from the physical presence of Christ, we catch sighting of sightings of him where in the scriptures. This is where he has revealed himself plainly. It's the scriptures that speak of me. So if in 2017 we want to see Jesus rightly, then let it be a year that we spend immersed in this book. The second exhortation, savor him. Savor him deeply. Again, how, you might ask. How? How, how do you, I, I can't control my affections. I just love what I love. I read the Bible, seems boring to me. I get tired, I fall asleep. If I don't have coffee, it's devotion time is over. How do you, I can't just turn this on and change my heart. Well, guess what? You're right. You're right. This is why you have, have guys like uh, in Psalms 119, you know, guys like, like, like the psalmist there who's saying, open my eyes to see wondrous things in your law. This is how I open most of my devotions. I'm dead. It doesn't seem wondrous to me as I'm reading a lot of times. Open my eyes. Help me. I know it's there. I know there's gold there. Help me see it. I wonder if you remember the two on the road to Emmaus. I mean, they had read the Bible, but they didn't see anything in it. This is the end of Luke's gospel. Jesus had died. These guys are bummed. They'd read the Bible. They didn't see this in it. They didn't see Christ in it. They didn't see glory in it. They were sad. And then Jesus comes to them, the risen Christ. He leads them in a Bible study. He opens their eyes and he sets their hearts on fire. They say this. Did not our hearts burn within us while he, Jesus, talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? This is why Christ came, died and rose to change hard hearts so that when he breathes his spirit onto man, we are made new and things that once seemed boring and we once wanted to spit out of our mouth now are riveting and we savor them. He writes that law here. This heart gets soft. This heart catches fire for things in scripture that otherwise seem dull. So we see him in his word. We savor him by his spirit. And in this we glorify God as we were created to do. Let's pray. God. We so badly want to bring you glory. And the most amazing thing is that bringing you glory is deeply satisfying to us. We were created for so much more. Would you help us as a church to live for that, to pursue that? God, we pray for more sightings of you in the scriptures and in our midst. We pray, God, that you would come and move over hardened hearts, calloused hearts, and give us affections. So that we would savor all that we see and bring you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.